What if the narrator in Job managed to take us, Job's hometown, as us? Or have you ever been in a situation where you opened your mouth and you felt like dumb spilled out all over the table? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at pathological.com, pathological.net, or toddlittleton.net. There we not only have podcasts, but an occasional blog post that uh, explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. You can also see a couple of podcasts that uh, are are pretty important, and and there are a couple of sponsors there that uh, have offered some uh, options for you. Coming up on Christmas, Oikos Handmade. Uh, offers a discount if you are looking for a gift for Christmas that happens to be handmade. You can follow that link to the website, and there's a code for a discount. Uh, Listen Sound, some of my favorite headphones I've ever had, uh, is a a project where the proceeds help benefit hearing. That is hearing uh, provided for those in uh, other countries where uh, options are limited. And so they brought sound, hearing, to uh, a number of people, and you can check out that link and and read their story. Always grateful for um, those who uh, do some co- something constructive with uh, their products and their proceeds. And we want to do something pro- productive with our conversations, and so we uh, entertain guests, authors, thinkers, practitioners who uh, help us explore the intersections of life, faith, and thinking theologically. And today on the podcast, I have a longtime friend, Scott Curry. Scott pastors in the Panhandle of Texas. He has been at his church 22 years, so uh, just one year different we than I, uh, where I am serving. And so there's two long-tenured pastors who tend to look at things through that particular uh, lens. Uh, Scott is working on his Ph.D. Uh, from, uh, I believe it's the University of Durham. He'll mention that in the podcast. And he's uh, exploring wisdom literature, and in particular, he is uh, taking a look at Job. And certainly that's a book that interests us all. And we talk about pastoring, suffering, uh, depression, and then uh, at the end, you'll hear us setting up for future podcasts. I think we'll make uh, Scott a regular uh, contributor here at Pathological and maybe have a segment called Pastoral Theology from the Old Testament. And, uh, and and you'll see the value in that, I hope. So uh, uh, sit tight and have a listen. And remember, uh, share the podcast. You could help us out by giving us a rating in iTunes. You could log in and give us a review. It helps us get found as a resource and a help for pastors or lay leaders who are involved in pastoral ministry. And um, we'd absolutely love it if you'd share the podcast with those you know that it might be a, a great help. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my friend Scott Curry. All right. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Scott Curry. Scott and I have been friends for quite a long time. At one time, uh, whether he'll admit it or not, he was the associate pastor at a church my folks were members at. We we uh, met there and, and have kept up over the years. We have an infamous fishing trip in common where um, for like a, in a once in a lifetime experience, we actually slayed the fish. I mean, we caught more fish than well, I hope the statute of limitations is up. We caught so many fish. So, uh, Scott, glad you're here, man. Well, thanks, buddy. Hey, listen, I'm going to have to come in back behind you and tell you that I agree wholeheartedly. 
uh, we slayed the fish. Buddy, I have never, I have never had an experience like that, and chances are I never will again. Hey, good to be with you, bud, and I'm, uh, I'm really interested in the topics that you've thrown my way. I think we're going to have a great discussion today. Yeah, well, uh, Scott, a lot of folks uh, may not know who you are just because we're friends. That doesn't really uh, help them understand a whole lot uh, about kind of your what you do now. And, and uh, so instead of me kind of give that, why don't, you, why don't you tell us what you've been up to the last 20 some odd years? Well, Todd, I think that, um, you know, I am like a lot of people probably that you talk to, that you interview. I'm a sinner saved by grace. However, when God called me, he called me to, gave me opportunities to advance uh, academically, much like yourself. And so I have spent many, many years really, really drilling down on the wisdom literature. I've uh, been pastoring where I am now for over 21 years. And currently, I'm a PhD postgrad at Durham University in the UK. And so this business of wisdom literature with a heavy, heavy accent on suffering, that has really, I don't want to say it's become my forte, but it is most certainly my interest. I too am one that, you know, we talk a lot about cancer survivors. Well, I would tell you that I am a depression survivor. My mother committed suicide early in my life. It was depression back in the 60s and 70s. We didn't understand that. And uh, we're getting to where it is not as taboo today. But I woke up one morning, having been at the church where I'm currently serving, and it was about 1.30 in the morning, and I realized, uh, and by the way, just for the record, I think it was all uh, part and partial to the fact that I had started the PhD work at Durham, that extra stress, the pressure, I think it was just part of the entire package. And frankly, I was ready to uh, end it all not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to keep it real. And I think that exacerbated my interest in the topic today, the issue of suffering. When you talk about pain, I think that you've got most people's attention. I know you most certainly have mine. Well, I think that... Um uh, probably catches a, a number of people. I actually uh, interviewed uh, a young, um, trying to remember denominationally, uh, his connection, but he had a strikingly similar experience, sans the uh, time uh, working on a PhD and studying wisdom literature. And maybe the first place to go is to say, you know, in your experience, both your own and in and uh, I've been a pastor for a long time, staff member, had lots of conversations with ministers over the years. I mean, how common is this an experience for ministers, would you, would you guess? Well, I think that's an interesting question. And as much as I think it's more common than a lot of guys realize, I, I don't think that the chemical depression kind of thing where in which your serotonin, your norepinephrine levels get off, much like mine. I, I'm a lifer, okay? I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. Some people, they can take the short run, stay on it for a while on a medication, come off of it, and they're fine. Mine is not a sporadic or periodic situation. Mine is definitely chemical. Well, I have to confess, as many people as I had diagnosed myself, and I want to be clear, I don't play the MD game. I don't play the psychiatrist game. However, there are certain signs that are obvious. 
And when I would see those signs in a person, I would tell them immediately, look, you, you, you've got to get to an MD, let him diagnose you. Here's my point. I don't think a lot of pastors really understand what's happening to them. I don't think they recognize the depression, many of them, until they have some sort of a breakdown. So you ask me, how common is it? I would argue that to have the significant chemical imbalance, because that's not just hereditary. It can happen to a lot of people. It can happen because of stress. I don't think that is as widespread as the other kinds of depression, but I would argue that a majority of pastors either go through it or they become lifers. And many of us, I'm including myself, many of us, though we have diagnosed and others, we don't even recognize it when it's hitting us. We're too close to the issue. And we feel as pastors that we really can't come clean. I, I'm out here in a small church. I love my people. Most of them love me. You'll understand that. <laughs> you know, after 21 years, the unfortunate thing is they get to know you. But most of them love me. There has not been one time in my ministry here, and I'm eight years on the other side of that incident that I just described. Not one time have I felt like as a pastor I could get up and be raw and be brutally honest about that through which I went because I'm afraid of what they're going to hear. Oh, my gosh, our pastor's about to pray, uh, crater. Oh, my gosh, I can't go to him for help. Oh, my gosh, look what we've done. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, though it is uh, something that we construct in our lives more than the church actually places upon us, I still believe that's a reality, and therefore I would answer your question by saying this. I think a lot of guys go through it, and I think that it gets bad because we're afraid to admit it because our job says that our performance is dictated by our health, our mental health, our spiritual health, and therefore we can't be going through something like this. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think I think it's important, and, and I want to you know take the track we talked about here, but for just a second, I, I think it's important to uh, key in on the fact that um, stress is horrible. And stress shows up in a host of ways. Most of the time, we who, you know, are pastoring or in ministry, we, um, we feel stress, um, what it does to a heart, um, what it, what it does to us in some sort of, maybe even our stomach, you know, you can you can have, you can have gastrointestinal issues and you don't know where they're coming from. So ulcers and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not really, it's not really <clears throat> that, um, uh, it, 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 it can, it can show up and we can ignore it because we think, well, that's what stress does. But when you say stress can actually, it does have a chemical effect on it. I mean, it does, our bodies react and respond and so guys really need to take care that when they see signs to um, uh, do the hard part. And the hard part is to, you know, own the fact that we're just frail. Uh, we, we, we just don't, we don't have the capacity to handle some of the things that come our way. And it's not wrong to admit that we don't. Well, I agree with that. And I think, uh, Todd, also, I think we've got to learn as pastors to lean in to our spouse uh, at times like this. And I'll tell you why I say that. Uh, when you talk about being self-aware, about you know trying to at least admit this is what's going on, 
um, for many people, this is this is uncharted territory. And so, you know, well, are you depressed? I don't know. I've never been depressed before. I don't know what that's supposed to look like. Right. Well, I can tell you that what I said to my wife was when I recognized what was going on, and I had to get bad. I had to get really bad. I mean, I had gone through uh, how I was going to do it, where I was going to do it. Um, I had put everything in order, but when I decided that I needed help, I asked my wife to go with me to the doctor for this reason. I knew, I knew that as depressed as I was, now I'm, I want to say this again, I'm stressing a serious chemical situation, okay? Mm -hmm. But I knew that as bad as I was, I was not seeing reality the way that it was. And I remember mm -hmm. going into the doctor's office. And I remember my doctor asking me a series of questions, and he would say, for example, well, Scott, have things been amping you that don't normally amp you? And I said, well, no. And he would look at my wife, and she would say, yes. Well, Scott, uh, what about sleeplessness? Have you had a hard time sleeping, or you've been sleeping all the time? Well, no, not really. He would look at my wife, and she would say, yes. You see, Here's how I describe the, the situation in which I found myself. I was, it's like being in this deep, dark hole. And, and this applies to Robin Williams or whoever else. You know, so many people, they say, I can't believe a guy like that with all of his fame, with all of his fortune, with all of his whatever. I can't believe that they would do something like that. Well, you have to understand there's this overwhelming sense of hopelessness that goes with it. And it's like being in this deep, dark hole. You have all of these people standing around the rim of the hole, and every one of them have thrown you a rope. And it's not that you don't have the strength to climb out. It's that you don't even see the ropes. Mm -hmm. Your perspective is so bad. It has become so normal for you that you believe, you begin to believe that what you believe is normal is accurate, mm. and it's not. But it right. becomes the norm for you, and therefore I say again, I think we have to learn how to lean into our spouse. Let our spouse be our litmus test, because we may really not know what's going on. Mm. Well, I mean, and, and that's a great segue, frankly, into one of your favorite uh, uh, pieces of wisdom literature in the scripture. And yes. so when, uh, you know, when we were kind of setting this up and we were talking a little bit about that, it, it's a, a perfect explainer for why Job has become for you, um, not just academically, but also personally, a pretty important uh, piece of literature. Yes, it has. And I would add one more thing, pursue it to where we are in this podcast today, obvious, it's be, uh, obviously, it's become important to me pastorally. You know, I look at Job, and I think, you know, wisdom literature-wise, pastorally, theologically, if we're going to end at the right place, it is pertinent that we start at the right place. And so, when you look at the book of Job, you get into it, and, and I would... Uh, uh, I would make reference to his wife and her situation in just a moment. Right now, let it suffice to say that when we talk about leaning into our wives, Job says to his wife, when she says, hey, honey, I tell you what, sweetheart, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, she's called a fool, a naval, 
in the Hebrew, which is uh, one of the most significant words you could utilize when you're talking about a fool. I mean, it means you are a straight running, as we say in the panhandle, you're a straight running idiot. Okay. Uh, if I could put a little um, uh, hillbilly into it. Well, here's the situation. You think about Job's wife, you think about his condition, you put the two together, what do you have? You have a pastor's wife who was watching her husband struggle, and which of the two is the harder, to be the one struggling or to watch it happen and be hopeless? And so I tend to take a little different view of Job's wife. Oh, I know what the Hebrew says, and I know what he called her. Now, let's segue back into where I was, talking about ending at the right place and the necessity of starting at the right place. When you look at Job, and I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to quote it here for just a minute, but it says, uh, that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Well, okay, you look at your study Bible, uh, you're going to find that, that, well, you know, where is us? Well, evidently Job was uh, down around Edom. He was here, he was there. Well, now the truth of the matter is, we're not real sure where Job was. If you really drill down and dig into this thing, we don't know where Job was. And here's the point with that. As pastors, boy, do we set ourselves up because we miss the first real, strong, solid statement that is made in relation to suffering, and that is this. You got to live with mystery. You got to live. Where is Job? We don't know. We really don't know. And I think the message there is, I think the writer is trying to say, you better get the cameras rolling because this is going to be a ride, and it's going to be a ride without a seatbelt. You're not going to feel locked in. You're not going to feel comfortable. And you're not going to like what's going to happen this thing, not the least of which is you're not going to like the ending because God is not going to walk up and say, okay, Joe, I know. Let's just play the game, Western civilization. I'm going to give you the answers. That's not how this thing happens. And so if you do not as a pastor, if you are not willing to live with mystery, then well, there are a lot of things that can happen, one of which is you begin to believe in a God that does not take into account the entire counsel of God's word, and you therefore set yourself up because the sweet, good, fluffy, lovely, perfect little God that we like to package is not always the way we experience God. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great uh, key uh, uh, point in that the whole the whole thrust too of the story is a bit mysterious. I mean, there there you know, not only do we not know where us is, which we could play on that and say we don't know where us is sometimes. That's right. Um, you you have you have this particular picture that is is because it's wisdom literature and because it's poetry, we try to stuff into a particular uh, way we read everything else, say a, a, a history or a narrative. And, and, uh, and there are just some, there are some things that um, only show up here. Uh, the, the adversary shows up. And of course we, you know, you, you're smarter at this than me, but you know, the, the, the way we've, uh, translated certain uh figures you know might be might be nice to 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 emphasize that 
you know, where's this accuser come from and who is the accuser and, and can the accuser be? And eventually we find out the friends become accusers and, 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 you know, there, there's a lot, and we're sitting here in the midst of the difficulties of life and when suffering does come, boy, I mean, it can leave us with, uh, uh, either one, a terrible dystopian feeling, or it can leave us just simply um, feeling a bit twilightish. I, I think so. I think so. Uh, I think you're, you're spot on there. And, and you're absolutely right. When you talk about the accuser, uh, I think many of our translations do us an injustice because they capitalize the word Satan uh, they make it more or less a proper name. And in the Hebrew, there's an article before it. It's Hasatan. And uh, actually, it probably, I want to say probably because we believe, uh, it's most likely a picture from the Persian period in which you would have a court gesture. And let's just play the game. Let's say you're, you're in a village and the court gesture's responsibility was to walk around and to make sure that people were still being loyal to the king. And so what he would do is he would come up and he would start to ask questions. He would make statements. He would bait people to see how loyal they were. And if it was the report of the court gesture, say, he would go back to the king and say, hey, we got a problem over here with these folks. Then it was off with their head kind of thing. And that's really, I think, a more accurate picture of what we have with the Satan, the adversary. It is his responsibility to test, to walk, to try, to try to find the loyalty and the faithfulness. And I, there's a lot we could say here, but suffice it to say at this point, it's interesting to me that God in this, you've got this atmospheric, this cosmic play that starts to uh, take, take shape on, let's just say, one of the largest cosmic stages of life. Job doesn't see the stage. He doesn't know what's going on. You've got the adversary who was walking around doing his thing, and God doesn't shut him down. Now, God puts him on a leash, but God doesn't shut him down. And I wonder if there is anything in there about, if you want to talk about uh, our faithfulness as pastors, is there anything in that? that indicates to us about how serious God is regarding our loyalty to him, first and foremost. If you get into Job chapter 1, 1 through 6, whatever, here's Job playing priest to his family. So it's obvious there's a priestly role here that is being played. And I might, I might parenthetically say that if, if pastors, uh, staff members, uh, leadership, whatever they are, if we can't be priests to our family, first and foremost, then we really do need to back up and think about our loyalty to God. Because I think the message there is uh, Job did not leave his family behind in all of his endeavors. That's very important. However, then we bring, coming back over, segueing back over to what we're talking about, our loyalty to God. It's interesting that God seems to be willing to say to the adversary, hey, you missed one. Check out this guy over here, Job. Now, you and I say, oh, God, that's great. Really appreciate that. But does it not send us a message regarding how serious God is about our loyalty? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that, uh, you know, one thing we might stop and do, because I, I think that um, we've, um, you know, we've grown up with this uh, sort of uh, uh, three 
level or three layer descriptor of you know Jesus's prophet, priest, and king. And so when we hear priest, that conjures things for us. I, I I'll check with you, uh, the the Hebrew expert. But to for for my understanding and the way I've tried to communicate it is 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 the prophet represented God to the people and the priest represented the people to God. So in that way, when we're talking about loyalty to God, in here's a loyalty to those whom you are bringing or presenting to God. So, you know, pastorally, it doesn't do us really any good to castigate people that were at the same time supposed to present to God. If we have a word for them on a prophetic side, we have to take great care that that's, that's not ego driven. But in when you when you reference, you know, Job's role is he was a uh, there's a priestly function for his family. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think sometimes we we forget that that we are not using that word in the sense of um, uh, as a vicarious representative, as much as we are saying this is the collective group we've lived with. We've been given responsibility uh, to care for, to shepherd. Uh, you know, Jeremiah talked about the faithless shepherds, and we and so we present. We're presenting uh, those to God. Here we are, and um, and and so I, I think that's a pretty important catch. Um, otherwise, you know that word priest carries with it such connotations that um, I think you're drawing out what was going on there is really helpful. Well, I think so. I, I, yeah, that's that's right. I think you know if you look at what's happening, let me uh, let me take. What you have said, let's boil it down and now let's bring it back into the text itself. I think it is especially difficult to represent our people on a spiritual, loving, caring. As a matter of fact, if you look at Job, you're spot on. That's what he's doing. He is getting up uh, early. He is making sacrifices on behalf of his kids just in case they did something that they're not aware of. Well, It's especially difficult to do that when it is your inner circle of people that you're supposed to be representing to God that are attacking you. Mm -hmm. That is where it gets to be raw. That is where we, we have our issue of maturity challenged because you see this issue of pastoral concern and and being more than they are, not in the sense that we're better than they are, but we have got to either possess or develop the maturity to say, you know what, somehow, some way, as cliche as this sounds, I've got to get beyond myself in this because I do have a greater responsibility. Now, all the while, we've got to be willing to say, I will give myself permission, however, to hurt and to live in this pain until I can move beyond it. And so, yes, representing our people to God, absolutely. But again, bringing this thing back and putting it right back into the text of Job, we find ourselves saying that is so difficult when the people that we are going to God to try, you know, we're on behalf of them kind of thing. We are trying to present them to God. We're really, and our heart is in it. We find ourselves much like Job at the end of the story. If you watch what happens with Job, there has to be a reassembly kind of thing. As a matter of fact, before God will accept his friends, and I'm talking now about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's responsibility is to pray on their behalf. 
And I can tell you as a pastor, there have been many times when were I to pray, I might be somewhat like the sons of thunder. I mean, I, you know, I've had all I can enjoy. Uh, you guys, uh, I tell you what, you don't want this right now. You, you know, you want to talk about imprecatory Psalms, uh, Psalms, uh, Psalm 139 comes to mind. And so as a pastor, we are called upon to do that right in the midst of having to deal with our own pain because life doesn't stop when we hurt. No, 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 no. No, and I think that I think you know in the course of the <clears throat> course of the the story, you know, um, uh, that's that's quickly borne out. I mean, even in a couple of moments where Job seems, you know, uh, he seems to hit a depth and then hit another depth, and then you know, it, 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 as he's kind of working through what all this means and how to make sense of it, and 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 where to where to focus the causality of the herd and and all all of that you know it's it's um it, it it's it's this I don't know uh, you know it's almost a cyclical sort of experience even though it seems um, uh, like his three friends simply are on repeat you know rinse wash and repeat but for Job's response to those it seems like he's exploring greater depths of what he's encountering. And, uh, you know, I, I think you get signals of that, you know, along the way. Um, and how have you, you know, when, when we, we talk about uh, that suffering and, um, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, much we want to chase it. But, you know, one of the biggest things for us is we always are uh, interested in cause. Um, and, and so that's a, that is a big question in Job. Where does this come from? And I've always been intrigued by that friend that shows up late. Actually, probably wasn't a friend. He, you know, interlocutor. He was a, a bystander. I mean, you know, there's some who think he might have been just this young, smart aleck kid who was looking on from the you know sideline and thought the three friends, you know, didn't have it right at all. And he offers a corrective and he waxes three chapters. Mm. I think it is. And then it's almost like God says, hold the phone. Time out. But uh, I think it was Spurgeon, isn't it? Isn't it Spurgeon that uh, takes Elihu's um, God chastens man with pain in his bed once, twice, no, maybe maybe three times to rescue his soul from the pit. Mm-hmm. So if you're not careful, your your causality issue actually becomes maybe problematic if you're not careful. Yes. So now you can correct all of my poor theology right here. No, I, what I want to do is I want to back up and I want to throw a couple of props towards Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You know, I'm pretty hard on them. I think I think that they're, they're places in the cast of the story, if you will. I think that they're put there to, to be demonized, so to speak, or at least it really lends itself to that. But beyond that, if you look at those three guys in Job chapter 2, they do something right. Mm-hmm, that, yes. And again, it's, it's pastoral in nature, but they see Job hurting. They see him from afar. They don't recognize him. Uh, and he, Job is, is sitting there and he's rocking back and forth. It's almost like, you know what, I, I, this is ineffable. I cannot believe that this happened to me. And the three guys come and they sit down and they're quiet for seven days. Yeah. Now, 
You want to talk about uh, pastoral instruction. I don't know that it gets any better than that. Now, unfortunately, these guys get over it. Then they determine that it's, <laughs> you know, for, for this humongous diatribe. And I do think that that plays a part in the book as well, because I think the, the dialogue sections are the writer's way of saying that suffering is such that, especially when you throw all of the ingredients into it, it is such that it is very difficult to understand. And I think that's the part the dialogue section plays. They're trying to come to terms with this thing, and they're trying to come at it from a, we need to correct his doctrine point of view, we need to correct his righteousness point of view, and that's already been settled in chapter one. But these guys now, the first thing they do is they come in and they sit down and they're quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to us as ministers, the power of presence is more powerful than anything we could say, and it is certainly more powerful than the wrong things we may say. Oh, yeah. I have heard it. You have heard it. Well, God just needed him. Someone dies. Well, God decided he needed an angel. Well, it was just his time. Well, now, okay, you're half right. The Bible does indicate that our days are numbered. However, we don't know that. You can get real rigid there and say, well, does that mean if I jump out of a plane at 30,000 feet and I don't die, that it was not my time? You have to be very careful about that. But when we get into this business of trying to search out with someone the meaning of death, the timing of death, we have to go back to Job chapter 1, verse 1, and remind ourselves we're dealing with mystery. Mm-hmm. Be very careful because we can't open up our mouths. And dumb falls out all over the table. <laughs> and, and what's sad about that is, is that when that is repeated, when the wrong is repeated enough times, then the myth becomes fact, and there really is a buy-in. And now, now we've got a problem, and this, this speaks directly to our concern today. You talk about pastor as theologian. Listen, there has to be a depth of understanding of the Word of God, and I have noticed in my ministry, I'm getting to be a little older now than I used to. I just can't seem to get that stopped. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm noticing. I'm noticing that your many of your what I might call well-read, well-studied pastors. One of the big differences between those gentlemen or ladies, or you know, and, and your your less experienced is the answers that they give when suffering, when pain, when catastrophe shows up. They have a depth of understanding that is actually a help toward healing, whereas the other statements that can be made, uh, they have a way of creating a false caricature of God. Sure. And the problem the problem with these caricatures is if you live long enough, you're going to suffer, and that caricature is going to be your anchor. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. That's the God you want to hold on to when life's not making sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, and I, you know, and I think, you know, the, the, um, the pastoral kind of uh, admonition would be to take some time and care, else you, you foster that caricature, 
And then you act surprised when the person says, if that's God, I'm out. Um, right. and, and I think that's the, that's the part, because it's too, too easy for us to assume that they've drawn their vision of God from that maybe same well, if you will, uh, and instead have depended on the caricatures or um, those, those patterned responses that are aiming to actually alleviate the stress of saying something. Right. So when you say that, you know, it's, it's, it's better to follow the free, the three friends initial response and be quiet so that dumb doesn't fall out all over the table when you open your mouth, yes. you know, there has to be a measure of um, uh, intentionality that I don't want that to happen. And again, if I'm going to be a priestly figure, then part of that role is to work with that group of people to help them to, you know, um, uh, dash all the idols that I think actually are what result from these caricatures. Because really a caricature is an idol. It becomes this thing I'm putting my hope and my confidence in. And then you realize by that idol, you know, that idol of made of wood, hay and stubble can't or metal or gold or fine. It can't do anything. It's in right. it's inanimate features can't do anything for me. And when we create caricatures of God, they become inept. And when someone's depending on those and they're they're staking their claim that when suffering comes, this is what I can count on. And they wake up and go, uh, where? No, where is that God? You know, and rightly there that is no God there. No one shows up. And then, of course, the, the, the I think the, the unfortunate interpretation is, is ah, this is just a myth. I think the best, I think the best definition by way of real living that I've heard or that I've read comes from Brueggemann in his commentary in the Westminster John Knox Press series on Isaiah, in which in Isaiah 46, Brueggemann makes this strong statement of contrast. And it goes like this: the difference between serving God and serving an idol. In difficult times, if you're serving an idol, you're going to end up being the one that carries your God. If you're serving God, then your God will carry you. And and I think we don't realize the the amount of extra stress, extra weight, uh, these false gods. We like the quick, we want, you know, give me some fast service kind of stuff. Tell me something going to make me feel better. And by the way, just for the record, I would also argue that um, when someone is suffering, that is not the time to correct their theological posture. Uh, I walked into a, a lady's walked into a lady's uh, presence one time. I was at a basketball game. I got called out. They said, "Hey, this lady needs you." I get to the hospital. Her husband had just died. They were sitting in their living room watching, uh, you know, reruns of I don't know Law and Order, whatever it was. Sure. And, and this guy is dead. And there, you know, there was no warning. There was no nothing. And she and her husband, you have to know them. You've probably seen them before, just different names. But, you know, very close. This is one of those ladies that put everything into her husband, he himself into her. They were kind of keep to themselves kind of folks, but lovely, wonderful people to be around. I walk in to the hospital room and this lady is much like Job. She's just rocking back and forth. She can't even speak. And she starts to say things. 
And she's saying things that I don't really believe that she believes, but I know they are not biblically accurate. And what was amazing, there were several people around her trying to comfort her. People started attempting to take her to chapter and verse and correct her so-called seemingly bad theology. And I remember turning red. And as a matter of fact, I just had to kind of calm myself down because at that point in her life, the tragedy having struck, she deserves a Job chapter three opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you watch Job and Job chapter three, I mean, he gets so belligerent as to say, you know what? I wish I was an abortion. That's what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, James likes to talk about the patience of Job. Well, you know, if you will look at Job in chapter three, baby, he is way beyond. He's already uh, outkicked his coverage on being patient. Okay, he is. He is angry. He is so, and he gives a voice to his anger. And the the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he believes what he's saying. But the truth is. Uh, It was raunchy, it was raw, it was real, and hey, this is life. Afford people the opportunity to say ridiculous things in that moment. Our responsibility is not in that time to correct them, but a ministry of presence. Yes. And I I think that, um, I don't know if you you, uh, um, read or or, or heard uh, David Fitch uh, much, um, but taking the taking this bit of presence uh, from the realm of of, uh, of the context of Job, um, Fitch is at Northern Seminary. Wrote a little book called Faithful Presence, and he's he's a uh, CNMA, but he's really kind of a, uh, he's got sort of a, a, a Mennonite Anabaptist leaning toward uh, presence and discernment and being together and that sort of thing. And when I hear you emphasizing that in, in, in the context of suffering, I, I think it's eminently translatable that the practice of presence isn't confined to suffering. That's right. And so maybe that um, when, uh, if, if we were capturing what you're describing here in, in a way that it represents all of uh, our, how would, I, how would I say, a, a regular pattern uh, of how we approach all relationships and, and all experiences when suffering comes, we will have practiced what that is and yes. we'll be discerning its value prior to rather than visiting the hospital and wondering, you know, I know you just received the worst diagnosis in the world and I'm supposed to be here with, you know, um, just a killer line that will help you. And instead, I, I'm really here to be kind of a life giving hand hold. You know, and and I think that so I think I don't I don't want to miss what you're saying, but I, I do think it's important to note for us, especially pastors, that that presence isn't just for the crisis. Presence has to actually, I think, always be the precedent we set, and that becomes a greater habit for us in crisis. I like that. I, I like it a lot, and I'll tell you as you're as you're talking about that. Uh, I'm doing what I usually do with my wife. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say as uh, as it relates to the argument and not listening to her. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But I, I think that 
the more we practice it, if we will adopt what you just said as a lifestyle, then I think it will be much easier for us when we do have to step into those more difficult times. There are levels, I think, of presence. And I think that it gets, I think there are several things we have to consider. First of all, you're, you're one of these, I'm one of these long-tenured pastorates. There's good, there's bad that goes with that. But one of the things that I've noticed, perhaps you have as well, is that now when I walk into a situation in which one of my people, who, by the way, have become my friends just because of that elongated uh, ministry of presence, practicing presence kind of thing, uh, now for me, the feelings are much more intense when they Mm -hmm. go through a difficult time. If I have been practicing this ministry of presence, uh, this pastoral presence, ongoing, so to speak, then it is easier, not easy, but it is easier for me to walk into a situation because I do think in times of intense suffering, and again, I keep going back to Job, but in times of intense suffering, we we have to, I think, at least give voice to the fact that there does seem to be this unwritten expectation this unspoken expectation, you just said it. You just mentioned it. Look, man, I need for you to wave a verbal magic wand. I don't like the word I just got, and I'm looking to you for something. And if indeed the person with whom we are uh, ministering at that time, if they have bought into some kind of false caricature of God, then I think that the expectation is even more uh, significant on their part, hey, do something, do something, give me a word. Well, you know, God's in control. There we are. Now we've just played the trump card, and what the heck does that mean? Um, I'm getting a little excited. I do get excited about Job and about these kinds of conversations because they are absolutely germane to what we're doing in our ministries. But you talk about um, walking into a suffering situation. I think the intensity there, the atmosphere, there's crying. There are people that are trying to help. There, And if you've been there for a long time, you walk in and the room turns to you. It's just your presence. Now you feel like I'm in the spotlight. I've got to perform. No, you being there, that's it. Mm-hmm. And hold them. The, you talked about the ministry of touch, Jesus in his ministry. You hold them, you let them cry, and you be okay with that. Mm-hmm. You be okay with that. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I think there's, and, and I think you said it. I mean, I think that there is, and I don't know, maybe you can identify the, the point in time, but I, there is a point in time where, there is a transition um, in um, how the depth of relationship is perceived and what's willing to be received from your presence there. Um, you know, I, you know, the old conventional, um, so I'm trying to remember if it's Schaller who said, uh, you know, you, you don't get to be pastors until after about year three or maybe year five, you know, and when you live in a world where, so transitory for pastors, that really means that some guys never get the experience of being pastor. That's right. um, and, and so while that may not be a, you know, Schaller may have been drawing on the breadth of his experience in, 
anecdotal and statistical information. We don't want to draw a hard line, but we do want to identify that there, there does come a point in time. So a guy who kind of gets frustrated early on, not being allowed, if you will, if I can use that phrase, not being allowed or not being received as the pastor may just need to recognize that he's got more time to be present. And that when that rather than get frustrated by that, um, you know, keep, keep your hand to the plow and keep plotting, keep showing up. And if you keep showing up, I don't, you know, I don't think there's a, I'm, I'm not sure there's not a greater um, catchphrase, if, if you will, to describe how we can communicate the reality of God by always showing up. If we're going to use your illustration of Brueggemann uh, and Isaiah 46 about the heaviness of carrying an idols or being carried, you know, what, what that's being, you know, what, what the trend is, you're having to carry the God you want to show up instead of recognizing when the God that carries you shows up. And, and so when we're showing up, you know, that becomes kind of this um, uh, great picture um, for what we try to communicate when we're talking about the good news of the gospel and what God's done in Jesus, you know, and I, I'd love to lay claim to that, but uh, a friend of mine who, who has gone through his own, you know, long period and ongoing period of suffering, um, you know, terminal cancer, he turns um, 40 at the end of the month. Um, you know, that was a line he used, you know, when he was going through some of the most horrific descriptions of treatment and such, and his wife crawled into the bed with him in the midst of his suffering. Now, that sounds all sexy, but when you've been through chemo and, and um, I, I don't want to, you know, um, it was not a pristine bed. How's that? It, it, it was a hospital bed and it was, it had, it had stains and residue and, and, and it would have been the thing that nobody would have said, I'm going to crawl up in there and in the midst of that, she showed up. And for him, that was a line that I drew in a little piece he wrote about Mary's that I just kind of trailed on out and said, that is a great picture for pastoring. And that is the one thing that to go back to your um, uh, point about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were there. They showed up and maybe they were silent and then maybe they weren't, but they showed up. Who else showed up? So even when they may be trailed off to poor theology and, and bad responses to what was going on, and, and I'm not excusing that, but we can't lose sight of the fact that they showed up and they stayed there. Well, they stayed there until the story shows up. If I remember right, they stay there until, until God shows up and speaks. And I'm guessing he's still there because God then addresses them. Well, yes. Uh, and again, I'm going to continue with your illustration. Uh, you know, you talk about it not being sexy, that the, the aforementioned here. Of course, uh, these guys show up and poor Job is sitting there. He's uh, boils all over his body and he's taking pieces of potsherd and he's scraping them off. Now, you know, we're talking about a day uh, in which someone sees someone like that from afar now, they didn't recognize him, but they initially they didn't recognize him because of the uh, disfiguration, because of all of these abscesses and boils and so forth. And so, of course, in that day, we're talking unclean. I, look, hey, you know what? I'm not, not only am I not getting close, I'm not getting downwind from this guy. And yet, as unsexy as it was, they came in and they sat down. And I think that I like what you said. Just show up. I happen to be 
good or bad, a Rocky fan, just keep punching, Rocky. Yeah, just keep punching. Just keep punching. Look, if you if life has become, if life for you has become, now, and I'm segueing, but I'm not, but if life has become pain in, in your own, I'm talking about the pastor's life, if if you're if you're dealing with your own pain, and unfortunately that happens, we pastors, we're people, uh, we've got family issues, we've got things with our own health, we've got whatever, uh, what that does is that has a way of tempting us to not show up. And I would say sometimes you can't, that's obvious, but playing through your pain, pushing through the situation, pushing through even if you've got an antagonistic relationship with people, even if it is all too painful for you because you've really grown to love these people and they you push through, show up, and recognize that you're not going in there alone. You're walking in there with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who seeks to minister through you. And do not, you know, I tell I tell guys all the time, you know, they will say, well, I got in there, and, and you know, I, I just, and they just feel so inadequate. And I get it, been there, done that. Mm-hmm. And as many years as I've been in the ministry, I'll have it again, I'm sure. But here's the thing that I try to tell people, they can't, pastors, they can't let this happen to them. Never lose your vulnerability. Oh, right. I mm. think that's important mm. because see, we, we, we get to the place where it's too hard to show up for whatever reason. Mm. It's easier not to show up for whatever reason. And we say, you know, like a principal in a school or whatever, I mean, you know, once you've dealt with people, uh, long enough, you get to where I can do it and not hurt when I do it because people, I mean, you know, it's it's very difficult out there. And I've had pastors say to me, well, you know, I just, I've gotten to where I am as tough as an old boot. Well, right. what does that mean? <laughs> because if you lose your vulnerability, right. listen, that is the conduit. That's exactly what you said, just different wording, you lose your vulnerability, you become less than what God wants you to be. He can't be as effective through you as he could otherwise. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, uh, that, that is uh, probably a good place to stop for this one, which what I'm glad about is, is this means we do get to do this again, because we didn't get near to the rest of the stuff we talked about. Uh, with oh, Joe. I enjoyed so, so we'll uh, we'll we'll just make this a regular deal and and make it kind of a segment. So uh, I'll just I'll just hold you to that. But on on the out, just just kind of reiterate. You know, uh, I think that one thing to and maybe this will draw us all the way back to the beginning. That one of the things pastors risk is that um, when when we are affected deeply by the events. Uh, of life. And whether, whether it has resulted in depression or whether it's, whether it's just been, man, I'm, I've, you know, I think you said I'm, I'm loaning too much real estate in my mind to a thing. Um, And then a crisis comes and you're like, I can't show up, you know, rather than repeatedly not show up, own your vault, own your frailty, and then go talk to somebody. You know, go go talk to somebody because you don't want that thing not only to affect you by burying it and giving it place and space it doesn't deserve, or you don't want to not deal with it because you're unsure of its consequence to you as a person. And 
And at the same time, you certainly don't want to go back and upon reflection think I let somebody down because that just compounds what's already there for you. So I just would lend that as a caution. I, I think I went through a little bit of that. I think after a period of time where there was a great strain over a nine month period, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you. I, there's some of that's a blur still trying to think back through it, but I'm not sure that I didn't maybe miss an opportunity because I had still myself been, you know, in the midst of what about all this stuff. And uh, fortunately, I think um, had some friends who came and sat with me and helped that out. But had I not, um, I'd have been that tough old boot who showed up through the emotions. I think having the conversations. Yeah. That is the first place to start. Yeah, yeah I agree. We feel so isolated. <clears throat> Have the conversations. And yeah. I might just say as my last word, keep punching, Balboa. Keep, sure. keep punching, Balboa. That's right. Hey, man, this has been fun. And uh, in all seriousness, we, we're going to set this up and make this a regular. I mean, we'll make it sort of an Old Testament pastoral theology uh, episode. We'll just keep that going because it's, like I said, we, we didn't we didn't touch on, you know, what about anger that comes out of this that suffering? Because, you know, um, Job definitely had some and we didn't even get to that subject. And there are definitely those moments where pastors going through the things they do get angry. What do we do with that? How do we process that? And all of that. That's oh, right. my goodness. Yes. So see, right there's two episodes right there. We got to get to. So. Folks, I hope you'll um, stay up with us because uh, we'll just make Scott a regular, force him out of his uh, hideout there in the panhandle. He'll have to come out from the bat cave and uh, or from the boxing ring or wherever he is and uh, uh, lend a little bit to us, all right? So, dude, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Hey, man, it was a blast. I, let's do it again. Well, hopefully you see the value in that conversation with Scott. We will uh, schedule uh, upcoming episodes where we actually talk about anger and forgiveness, and we'll look at uh, what Job tells us about God. Uh, Remember, I think a lot of times um, we are looking for what is said about us, but it's really appropriate to remember that the Scriptures are revealing God to us And then in relation to that, we learn about ourselves. We learn about things we need. We learn. We learn. So, as always, thanks for listening. And uh, remember, you can find us online at patheological.com, patheological.net, or toddlittleton.net. Subscribe in uh, iTunes, the new uh, podcast, uh, updated podcast app, or I use Outcast. Or you use your favorite podcatcher, but you can uh, get those episodes delivered right to your phone and into your earbuds automatically by subscribing. You can see the subscribe buttons there on the website, and um, uh, you can you can take advantage of those. Remember to visit our sponsors, those who uh, uh, we just kind of promote uh, along the way. And until next time, as always, peace.